Good evening. Welcome to episode 84 of the Political Mike Podcast. Episode 84 of the Political Mike Podcast. The most consequential midterm election in American history just took place last Tuesday. A polarizing and divisive former president announces his third bid for the White House. Russian-made missiles cross into Poland, killing two Polish citizens and setting off a chain of reactions across the globe. And reports indicate that the White House has largely given up, um, given up on hope that Congress will be able to raise the nation's debt ceiling during the lame duck session that runs through uh, late December. After a week like this one, it's no wonder why an estimated 40% of Americans identified politics as a significant source of stress for them. According to a November 2020 article by the National Center for Biotechnology Information, anxiety increased from 5.12% in 2008 to 6.68% in 2018 among adult Americans. The most notable increase and occurred among respondents between the ages of 18 and 25, from 7.97% to 14.66%, which was a more rapid increase than among 26 to 34-year-olds and 35 to 49-year-olds. This same study showed that anxiety did not uh, significantly increase among those ages 50 and older, however. Anxiety increased more rapidly among those never married and those uh, with, who had a, some, some kind of college edu education relative to their respective counterparts. Apart from age, marital status, and education, anxiety increased consistently among socio-demographic groups. Anxiety is increasing among adults under age 50 in the United States with more rapid increasing, um, I'm sorry, with a more rapid increase among young adults. In a time of global uncertainty, understanding the psychological health of the American public is crucial. And here to help me understand that psychological health of the American public are very uh, distinguished guests in the realm of not just mental health, but um, spiritual leaders. We have with us again, Professor Howard McDougall, uh, who has been a member of the Howard faculty since 2000, teaching courses on property, sustainable development, and civil rights. He has a background in civil rights and community organizing and has served the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, as Washington Bureau Chief and the National, Course and the National Conference of Black Lawyers as UN delegate. He has served on the National Governing Board of Common Cause, the board of directors of the Council of the International Exchange of Scholars, Fulbright Scholars Program, and the board of trustees of the Paul J. Acker Foundation. Uh, Professor McDougall specializes in civic culture and civic infrastructure, focusing primarily on how these support sustainable social and economic development and human rights. Professor McDougall has written several books pursuing these themes, and he, he has also written numerous articles and Huffington Post blogs. Professor McDougall, thanks for being back on. We have with us uh, Ms. Tambra Chisholm, uh, who is a licensed cert uh, certified social worker, clinical. Uh, she's now retired from Baltimore uh, County Public Schools after 28 years of service. She has also served as a social worker in the hospital, child welfare, and home care environments. And she continues to serve uh, since 2016 as a clinical social worker for cancer patients. Ms. Chisholm earned her master's of social work degree from Hunter College in New York. And in 2016, she earned her, her master's of arts in spiritual and pastoral care from Loyola University, Maryland. The idea of joining her social work degree with the pastoral care degree seemed logical uh, to her with a, because she has a servant's heart. Um, and she wants to serve those in the community who are living with chronic illnesses in need of uh, palliative care. Uh, Ms. Chisholm, thank you so much for being part a part of the political mic today. We also are going to be joined by uh, Ms. Tiffany Brewer, Professor Tiffany Brewer, um, who is an associate professor of law 
teaching courses in evidence. Professional, um, she also teaches professional responsibility, legislation and regulation, and a seminar in Black Women and the Law. As a former New Jersey administrative law judge, Professor Brewer uh, brings her judicial experience into the classroom and the law school community. She has over 20 years of teaching experience as a full-time and adjunct professor in law and public administration at universities in California, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. She's also taught courses in legal writing, administrative law and trial advocacy, and has directed student programs focusing on externships, mock trial, and moot court. She was recently appointed by the New Jersey governor as the first African-American to chair the New Jersey State Commission of Investigation, an independent investigatory agency empowered to expose organized crime, government fraud, and corruption. Throughout her career, Judge Bureau has served in high-profile leadership roles in government, including as an administrative law judge, assistant U.S. attorney for the District of New, York, of New Jersey, deputy chief counsel to the New Jersey governor, chief counsel to the speaker of the, the New Jersey General Assembly, New Jersey deputy assistant secretary of state, and regulatory officer at the New Jersey Civil Service Commission. Professor Brewer, it's a privilege and honor to have you on the political mic. And last but certainly not least, we have Pastor Eric Brewer, uh, who is the founder and, and senior pastor of Transform Church Global Ministries, formerly known as Rima Worship Center uh, International. He has been in pastoral leadership for 19 years and has been licensed in ministry for 28 years. Prior to starting his own church 19 years ago, Pastor Eric served as associate minister and youth pastor at the Cathedral International in Perth, Amboy, New Jersey. Throughout his ministry, service, Pastor Eric has led thousands of congregants and overseen a, a $1 million budget. He has led Bible studies for uh, NFL teams. He serves on the board of the Boy Scouts of America and serves as the CFO of the East of the, um, of the Esther Project. Uh, Pastor Brewer, thanks for making time to be on the political mic. I want to open up the discussion. Uh, we started off at the preface of the show talking about the, the, the toll that politics has taken in recent years on the American psyche. Uh, in the previous two episodes that we had centering on mental health, Professor McDougall, uh, we talked about uh, what you had identified as the vagus nerve, which, of course, is responsible for our flight and for, uh, fight or flight response to external uh, stressors, such as, you know, the political climate that we find ourselves in um, and the increased hostility that has been accompanying that climate in recent years. In your perspectives, um, what... I mean, how have you seen the American psyche impacted by this past election cycle that just took place? Um, and last night, one that just kicked off with the former president announcing that he will be seeking a third uh, bid for the White House. Anyone can jump in. There we go. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm muting myself. Yeah, again, you know, thanks, uh, Michael, for having us. And, you know, thanks to you, to, uh, 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 Ms. Chisholm and Professor Brewer and Pastor Eric, you know, for coming as well. Um, yeah, I think I think there's 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 no there's no question that we're we're in a crisis. Um, and you know, my students give me I, I I'm feeling and hearing from my students the kind of anxiety that you're talking about at the beginning of the program, particularly young adults. You know, there's climate change, um, climate instability, as well as political instability that make folks wonder, you know, what, it, what it's going to be, you know, what the world's going to be like. Um, the, the vagus nerve, you know, that we talked about, the polyvagal theory, you know, basically, you know, shows that we, we respond to social stress. We can, uh, our, our fight or flight uh, response can be triggered by 
a a social threat. Uh, it's it's designed to respond if we if our lives are in danger, but we have begun to learn how to respond to challenges to our place in social hierarchy, for example, as life threatening. Um, this is what the uh, the march in uh, Charlottesville, I guess, uh, Virginia. Uh, you know, you will not replace us. That business. Um, one of the problems with the politics in the United States right now is is that particularly on the right. Folks have stoked these fears, these kind of fight, flight, freeze, you know, fears, um, and made people very upset. Um, and that is kind of broadcasting a level of anxiety throughout the country that is very, very difficult to manage. Um, I think that we have to remember that these kinds of stresses affect all of us. Um, and the folks who we who we define as mentally ill or having mental issues, mental health issues, are being affected by the same kinds of stresses, just in a more extreme way than we are. Probably because they have experienced stress like this since they were very young, and uh, you know, kind of neural pathways get etched into your brain to respond to the conditions that you live under. The more you respond, the more you experience these kinds of things, the deeper those pathways get the more difficult it is for you to determine that something other than something really negative is going on. So I think that's the, that's the atmosphere that we're talking about. Um, I, I'm going to be really interested to hear from uh, our, our co-panelists who have pastoral backgrounds as to how it is, how is, how will it be possible to soothe some of this, particularly among people who might be stigmatized uh, as mentally ill um, by congregations uh, throughout the country. You know, I, I would also echo um, Professor McDougall's uh, observations of students in the classroom. And uh, I also serve as the co-pastor uh, with Pastor Eric of Transform Church. And, yes. and you know, we have been seeing, you know, higher amounts, I think, of concern and, and anxiety um, over the current climate, whether it be economic climate and the impact it has on homes with our church uh, members as well and those that we minister to in various various formats. Um, I'm also very involved in the American Bar Association as, as secretary of the section of litigation. And there is a, a fair amount of focus now on lawyer well-being as well uh, because of the impact that legal professionals, you know, who are often in, in, in either judicial or advocacy roles for those who are suffering from, you know, mental health issues, even in the legal system. Now we're seeing their, their counsel and the judges they go before are also facing higher levels of, of stress, pressure, and anxiety uh, as well. So we're seeing the same things, and uh, we definitely look forward to talking even more about the, the spiritual role, uh, the role, I should say, that spirituality actually has. Just as an example, today was my last class in legislation and regulation at Howard Law, and I, you know, asked the students if they minded if I would pray, you know, for them. I said, whatever your faith tradition is, you can just make it a contemplative moment. But it even took them by surprise when I asked them to just close your eyes and just center yourself for a moment and, and just get silent. And just embrace peace right now. 
even before I prayed. But afterwards, I had so many students. And this is my first semester at Howard. So, you know, I wanted to go easy. I've worked in faith-based institutions before. So there's just an open door. Um, but I cannot begin to tell you how many students rushed to me, even in COVID, right, and gave me hugs of embrace and said to me, thank you so much for praying for me. I feel so much better. And I was feeling so stressed out today. So we we wholeheartedly believe that as spiritual leaders, yes. we have a role wherever we are, a place in the moment to, to bring that um, to these stressful times. Yes, and I concur with your assessment and the pandemic has exacerbated uh, mental illness in our communities and seeing it um, on the front line being a pastor and just being able to minister to people and to talk to people in the community, in the churches, and to just encourage them in the times that we are living in. Of course, there's anxiety and stress behind the politics and the division in our nation. And on top of the pandemic, we had all of this uh, racial uh, unrest, as you saw the George Floyd um, killing on video. And so we had all this unrest in our nation on top of the pandemic and then political unrest and divisiveness that was going on. And so I think we have to encourage people, give them hope to believe for a better future and a, and a better community. I would like to add to my what my co-panelists have shared as a clinician, but um, as a school social worker retired. And so um, when the pandemic hit, and I remember it was March 13th, 2020, our school doors were closed and we thought we were going to be gone for maybe a week, a snow week, um, because Baltimore County loves snow days. And little did we know we were going to be a year, maybe two years into this thing. But what was concerning for me as a social worker for my school was food scarcity. And the fact that my families depended on my food pantry, but also depended on the services that we offered through the school system. Um, our elementary school kids were not easily accessing the online learning, something new for them. So our, there were inequities there. Um, some families did not have internet service at home and that meant that access to education was minimal, but yet they were being expected to do the work. And how can they do the work if they don't have the access? Yes, um, the racial unrest that existed exacerbated things for us. Um, our children felt that they weren't safe. Families felt that they weren't safe. And there was a need for us as a school community of service providers to make sure that our families had food, but also to make sure that our kids felt safe and that they felt that they had easy access to the educational resources that existed. What we're seeing now on the back end of it Kids are back in the building, but the gaps that exist are unconscionable, if you will. And it's, I'm not there anymore, but I still hear how much of a struggle it is for kids academically, social, emotionally, because they didn't have access to the services, didn't have access or consistent access to the special education services if they had individualized education plans. And we're going to feel the effects of that for a long time to come. 
And so I'm, I'm glad that we talked about some of the divisions that have contributed to uh, the anxieties that we that we see fueling the mental health uh, crisis that is ongoing. I was I just wanted to cite some numbers for you. Uh, in late April, the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and Tulchin Research conducted a poll this year. Um, they conducted a poll of 1,500 Americans to examine the extent to which extremist beliefs and narratives that mobilized the hard right uh, have been absorbed by the wider American public. And they found that the ideas underpinning the white nationalist great replacement narrative, you know, recently cited by um, alleged white supremacist terrorists in Buffalo, New York. We saw a shooting that took place in Buffalo, New York uh, last summer. Well, that has become thoroughly mainstream on the political right. Nearly seven in 10 Republicans, according to this research, surveyed agreed to at least some extent that demographic changes in the United States are deliberately driven by liberal and progressive politicians attempting to gain political power by replacing more conservative white voters. And across the political spectrum, this research has found that substantial there's substantial support for threatening or acting violently against perceived political opponents. We've seen that in the case of uh, Paul Pelosi on October the 28th. Uh, the Speaker of the House's husband who was attacked by a gentleman who was looking for the Speaker of the House and found her husband instead. Uh, even in looking at how, you know, the Americans see, you know, this new brand of Republicanism, the Make America Great Again MAGA group that has become more and more uh, vocal in recent years. Uh, it You know, 58%, according to Reuters, Reuters um, 58% of respondents uh, including one in four Republicans said that Trump's Make America Great Again movement is threatening America's democratic foundations. Um, and of course, Biden gave a speech saying that this is a battle for the soul of the nation, that democracy is on the ballot. And a lot of people responded to that. We saw an increase in voter turnout. Uh, we saw that, according to 538, turnout surged during the last midterm election in 2018 when 49% of eligible voters cast a ballot. Um, but here, uh, there was uh, uh, that that record was shattered in the 2022 midterm elections, with more uh, folks coming out to vote in this year's midterm election solely because, or mostly because, I should say, uh, they felt as if they could not allow themselves to have those who are going to be willing to overturn elections get into power. So, just to bring it back home to the mental health crisis, um, how do we, you know, enact policies or you know take sub uh, substantial steps towards uh, reducing the amount of or the percentage of people who are coping with these kinds of anxieties um, when there are so many things out there fueling um, those anxieties to continue. The replacement theory is one. The fear of what the other side of the aisle is going to do if they take control and power is another. You know, a lot of folks breathe a sigh of relief after this midterm election because a lot of the uh, so-called election deniers did not were not successful in their bid for Congress, in their bid for the Senate. And a lot of people said, well, this is a repudiation of that brand. But yet that brand of politics seems to still be alive and well. Um, to what extent can, you know, in the spiritual realm and even in the mental health realm, uh, certain solutions address these, these factors that are causing deeper divisions within the country? Uh, let me just take a quick shot at that. Um, what, what you're describing, Michael, is, is, is hierarchy. Uh, I mean, hierarchies, you know, our, our lives are governed by hierarchies, race, gender, class, national origin, in some cases, even religion. And the way hierarchies work is on the one hand is activating that fight, flight, 
or freeze modality, basically saying, if you don't take orders from us, you're going to be pushed further down the ladder. You're going to be closer and closer to the ground. You're going to be closer and closer to these people who we have, who we have identified as the other and particularly the dangerous other. But one thing I haven't talked about and we haven't talked about, Michael, is that these kinds of, of social stresses also affect uh, our, uh, it's not just the vagus nerve, it also affects what are called uh, our empathy and attachment modalities, which are located in the right and left frontal lobes of the brain. Just like I said with fight or flight, neural pathways are generated in response to experience. If we are told that we cannot, that we cannot empathize, we cannot attach ourselves to people who are identified as the other. It narrows the group of people that we can have um, exchange with. And if that group is dominated by a uh, um, charismatic leader is not the word demagogue. If that group that we are attached to, that we the only the group that the, the only group that we are allowed to empathize and attach with for fear of fight or flight, you know, on the other side, if that is if that group is dominated by a demagogue, we're going to kind of drink in everything that that person is saying. Um, and you know, we see these things kind of solidifying. Uh, you talk about you know both sides of the aisle. Um, on one side of the aisle, you know, we have people who are basically saying you know, the only election outcome that I will respect is one in which I have won. Um, but on the other hand, you have people, on the other side, you have people who are timid, it seems, who are kind of frightened by this level of intensity that they experience on the other side and are not really ready to step up and challenge them. They they um, they find refuge in in being being nice, you know, being right, you know, things like that. And that's not really enough. Um, but what I think is enough is broadening, trying to get back into that empathy and attachment modality and trying to broaden the scope of people that folks can connect with and the kinds of things that that uh, uh, Dr. Chisholm was talking about and Pastor uh, Eric and Pastor uh, Professor Brewer were talking about in terms of caring for people. That has to take place face to face. Um, it can't. Social media is not going to is not going to go deeply enough for that. There has to be a lot of face to face kind of exchange, and we have once we get the courage back to 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 connect face to face and empathically and, and attachment wise with folks that we know, then we have to start moving further and reaching out to people who we don't know. You know, maybe a person who we don't know, maybe he's on the other side or she's on the other side, but we found, we've seen some signal. Maybe we're walking down the street and somebody who looks, maybe somebody who has a MAGA hat on actually says hello to you, you know, or you say hello to them and they say hello back. There's a, a, a book that's out now by Rosalind Wiseman and Shantara McBride. Ch Rosalind is the author of a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, which was the, the uh, book that the... Uh, movie Mean Girls was based on. And it talks a lot about how people operate inside these hierarchies, how people put each other down and, and, and um, treat folks as if, they're, as if they're less than you. And the whole purpose of that is to make you feel more powerful, to make you feel less threatened in the hierarchy. And the book's, the title of the book is Courageous Discomfort. It's like, how do you have conversations with people on the other side of the aisle.
not I'm not talking about in Washington. I'm talking about in your own neighborhood. How do you have conversations with those folks? One thing is you don't approach them by telling them that everything that they believe is wrong. What you want to do is you want to establish some kind of human empathic connection with them first. You want to build trust. That's really what's what the politics that Michael describes has been eroding in this country is trust, our ability to trust each other, our ability to take chances and make those kinds of connections. Thank you, Dr. McDougall. Um, I truly appreciate that work, respect that work. I can recall in the midst of the pandemic, and we did some hard work as social workers for the school system, but we had to do some hard work for ourselves too because disparities were quite evident. And at the time we were uh, following the practice, and I guess they still are, I'm not there, but courageous conversations around race. And during some of our own um, professional learning events, we it worked in small groups around having discussions about that. Um, African-American, white, Asian, uh, Latino, Latina. And it meant that my colleagues and I had to meet each other in the screen because we weren't face to face um, and have those hard discussions. Um, what I found because I led one of the um, breakout sessions was that you had people that sat silently because they were maybe uncomfortable with the conversation, had never had the conversation before. Despite the fact that we had tools, if you will, to guide the conversation, it was still uncomfortable for people. Um, some people didn't want others to know what their thinking was or what their practices outside of work were. Um, but the work still needed to get done because we needed to be able to serve others. Um, and that was some hard work, but it was done. I know that we were told to make sure that we speak from our own space. So as an African-American woman, and you start the conversation out with that way, um, talk about my experience and what I brought to the table as an experience. Um, but also recognizing that I had to sit with the discomfort that maybe the other folks in the screen weren't going to add, weren't going to speak, weren't going to acknowledge or even show compassion for what I was sharing. Um, that's still important work. Um, I know that the nonprofit agency that I have been working with since 2016 is about to embark upon that work. And I think it's necessary across the board. Um, and I appreciate you saying not just at the political level, but the workplace, the community within which you live. We still have to live here, despite what the folks at Capitol Hill are doing. And we have to if you will, get along. Um, and it's going to take compassion, it's going to take respect, it's going to take a love for humanity, a love for those that we may not agree with, but we can agree to disagree and keep moving forward. And I truly believe that the work can get done. So Professor, in the in the article that was that's gonna be published in 2023, I believe, um, in the Howard Human and Civil Rights Journal, uh, there was a line that struck me and it was, it said that as your brain becomes increasingly disorganized, you will become more desperate to make sense of your circumstances and you will become increasingly likely to hurt yourself. 
someone else or property, a lack of physical safety, being homeless or in jail will always worsen these symptoms and increase, it actually increases the depression. Um, it goes on to say that the brain is also designed to rest by developing habits. The more frequently you visit your delusions and hallucinations, the more easily and frequently you will slip back into those thought patterns. You know, we're in a time when, you know, facts and reality itself, um, it's, it is something that is becoming more and more subject to, you know, I guess, um, relative, right? People are no longer accepting facts for what they are. Um, they turn to alternative facts like Kellyanne Conway, uh, Trump's former uh, spokeswoman uh, and campaign manager mentioned a few years back. Um, you know, for every MSNBC, you have a Fox. <laughs> for every Wall Street Journal, you have uh, uh, the conservative alternative. You know, you you have you have so many different perspectives and opinions and spins on everyday events. So much so that people actually act out on things that are not true. We saw that in the case of January sixth, folks storming the Capitol over a lie. Uh, Mike Pence, of course, has been more vocal recently now that he's on a book tour. Uh, he was doing an he's been doing interviews this week uh, with ABC News and CNN, uh, and he said, you know, the, the former president put my family in danger. Uh, um, and and you kind of pull back the veil to see what what it was like to be uh, within the pre the vice president's uh, inner circle at on that day, and the the crowd the January six riders came within a few feet away from him, right? Um, only by you know, <laughs> luck and circumstances, did they not find him and other lawmakers like Nancy Pelosi and uh, other leadership uh, members in the, the House of Representatives. Uh, and so we're in we're in a time, I remember one, one time I was in a class with you, Professor McDougall, and one thing that echoed in my head after I left your class and graduated and went on is that you said the 2020 election will be a violent election. And I kept hearing you saying that throughout January 6th, I, I was hearing you say that when that gentleman took a nail gun to go to the FBI headquarters in response to the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago, uh, I was hearing that, you know, when report, I woke up to reports of Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked with a hammer. Um, are those instances of political violence and um, intolerance and taking drastic measures the result of what you mentioned? Um, you know, the brain becoming disorganized um, the brain forming habits and hallucinations to fall back on to make sense of the world. And if so, how do we address the, those those underlying symptoms to reduce the likelihood of increased political violence moving forward? What kind of public policy solutions do you think have to be in place or should be in place uh, to kind of curb the likelihood of these kinds of instances occurring more and more frequently? Wow, Michael, that's a that's a really powerful question. Um, a couple of things. Um, I, I go back to to the conversation that that uh, Dr. Chisholm and I were having about the need to rebuild uh, community, in the sense not just of like we all go to church together or we all work for the same nonprofit, but more like we you know we are all in this in this together recognizing each other's humanity, um, having courageous, you know, and uncomfortable but courageous conversations. So I think that part of the answer is is rebuilding the the atmosphere, you know, the setting that we all operate in. And you know, going to the to the quote, you know, from the article, 
the more stressful the atmosphere and the setting, the more likely the more likely these neural pathways are to be created, the more likely they are to be revisited, to become deeper, and to become more and more the total reality of someone who's pushed further and further. You know, everybody's seen you know, circumstances are different. But I think, you know, the, the overall solution is, again, what, what, you know, what Dr. Chisholm and I were talking about, which is to create a safe space, a safe space to be human in this country, you know, which is, you know, I mean, Dr. King tried to do this, you know, I mean, there are, we have examples of how it can be done, but it has to be done from the, from the bottom up. It can't be like some, even Dr. King, you know, I mean, he was wonderful, but when he was killed, what, what was there to take his place? I mean, you know, you, you've got to, the kind of leadership that he, that he exhibited has to be echoed in, in every hamlet, you know, every family, every school, you know, in order for us to really get where we need to go. In terms of the, though these extreme events, you know, like, you know, the, the, the nail gun and, and, the, and the attack and things like that, you know, um, we, we need to, we need to um, turn the dial back on violence as part of our culture. Um, there's a, there's a, there's at least, I think there's more guns in the United States now than there are people. Um, you know, every, every developed country and developing, I mean, countries all over the world are, are, are encountering the, 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 the side effects, the, the after effects of the pandemic of climate instability. But, you know, we're not, we're not seeing these kinds of things happen in every country. And in most countries, People just don't have access to these kinds of weapons, um, so that's that's a real problem, um, and one that again, we need we do need we do need like forceful leadership, you know, uh, at at the top uh, to work with this. But you know, we can pass. You know, I mean, Second Amendment, not not notwithstanding, you know, we can pass reasonable gun laws at at the city level, at the county level, at the village level. You know, we can. We can come together and 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 create a kind of a ripple of 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 sensibility about how we do things at the local level, and that that can kind of create a, a bit of a kind of an atmosphere and a, a safety net around us, you know, like right where we live. Um, and we hope that that we make common cause with other with other communities and groups, you know, around the, the country. Who are moving in a similar direction? We can possibly, you know, link up and and make that atmosphere more powerful. I'd be really interested to hear what what the pastors have to say about this, though. Yeah, you know, I'm still kind of struck by what you said earlier in describing very well the concept of hierarchy, um, because I I just don't believe we can look at you know any issue that's talking about mental health and not really acknowledge the role of hierarchy and just the concept of allocation of power mm -hmm. and what it feels like to not necessarily be at the table um, or have access or perceived access to the tools to ever be there or to feel like or have a lived experience by which the goalpost keeps moving. So we, we have to acknowledge the role that the structure of our society has Absolutely. and the disproportionate impact it has on those that have been uh, systematically disenfranchised and, and shut out 
legally, by our legal institutions historically, from full humanity, as well as full participation. Um, so as a, a pastor and as, you know, a spiritual leader, um, I, I think there are two things that I think are really critical here. I think that as faith leaders, we do have to provide the environment, um, an environment that's different. You know, my husband is actually a doctoral student also uh, getting his doctorate in ministry. And I love that a part of his dissertation is um, looking at the impact of grief on African-American men and the role of spirituality, but also um, encouraging pastors kind of as one of his recommendations to really look at ministry in a different way and to really use trauma-informed ministry yes. techniques. Yes. And I know you'll talk more about that, yes. honey. But um, that I just think that's a concept. First of all, I, I wrote an article about uh, girls' courts uh, earlier this year and how um, even the court system, uh, when dealing with juveniles, uh, particularly delinquent girls, could really benefit from some of the trauma-informed uh, part, which which really means that you are, are not penalizing people without looking at the root cause of their quote unquote uh, perceived or alleged criminality. And that you're working with licensed professionals, yes. clinicians and experts to give them the help and services that they need as a part of the rehabilitation and the accountability. Mm -hmm. And so I relate that also to the spiritual realm and this concept of trauma-informed ministry because it's our responsibility also right now as spiritual leaders, no matter what church looked like before the pandemic and yes. before all of the political violence. I'm glad you use the word violence, Mike, because we have to be honest that violence is a tool that has been used in our society for since the beginning of time. And as a church community and church leaders, we need to protect and 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 even stand against the violence. And the second point I'll just make is that there is the role of spirituality in helping the individual. So we, our church is called Transform Church, and we, we believe in transforming lives. So the church, spiritual leaders should be working on helping people to mm -hmm. transform their lives. And I think that it starts with knowing your purpose. So, you know, Mike, you talked about just the environment we, we live in, and, mm -hmm. and there's just so much going on. Personally, I stay rooted and grounded by first knowing that I have a larger purpose than being a Democrat or a Republican. We have to minister to uh, MAGA uh, aficionados as well as you know, uh, those that are more liberal, uh, those that don't even believe that politics should really have a place in a person of faith's, you know, life. There are people of all ranging beliefs that we have to minister to and be prepared um, to help navigate, but we don't lose sight of the personal leadership and the, the purpose and the passion in the individual human experience that we believe can help even to get through mental health crises, to really know and understand your, your value. No, I'm not going to allow violence against me, even mm -hmm. as a person of color, right? I don't allow microaggressions. I don't allow stuff because that's violence. And because I know my self-worth, I know my purpose 
it mm-hmm. helps to strengthen me in times of adversity. And so those are some of the things that Pastor Eric and I right. really, even in sermons, in teaching, and we use our faith to, to, to really go that deep. I, I appreciate great comments. And one thing, and thank you again, uh, Mike, for the invitation. I believe in therapy. Yes. And I always believe um, in, in my counseling session, instead of asking, um, What's wrong with you? I ask the question, what has happened to you? What has happened to um, our community? What has happened to this nation? And there's so many triggers that's going on. So we saw the death, the murder of George Floyd on video. And we know this has been happening for years as unarmed African-American men has been killed by police officers, killed by in, in neighborhoods and so forth, citizens and so forth. And so we have all of these uh, these triggers that's taking place that's re-traumatizing our community. And uh, Professor McDougall and I was talking about um, intergenerational trauma, uh, transgenerational trauma. And I know Sister Chisholm, you see it in counseling, families and patterns that's going from one generation to the next generation. And in my study, I found that that trauma will change your DNA, can change your DNA. It's called epigenetics. And so when, when one generation experienced trauma and then they pass it down to the, to the children and to the next children, so you may have a battered woman and, and then the child sees that it grew up in a home where there's so much violence and that child inherits and may anxiety and high blood pressure. And so what we see in our communities is transgenerational trauma. And how do we respond to this transgenerational trauma and these triggers that's taking place when you see um, the the, um, the riot um, Char- Charlottesville in Virginia, and you see Ku Klux Klan, when you hear these racial overtones or whistles being blown, uh, when you see police officers, the blue line, you know, and, and several times they had a blue stripe right down the main street. And so these things can re-traumatize the triggers that re-traumatize our community, and we have to address it. Now, one thing about African-Americans, we have learned how to have trauma responses. We are great in survival, and we have a history of survival. Uh, We just uh, came back from Dakar, Senegal, and on Gori Island is the door of no return. And what we learned is that our people were prepped for the Middle Passage, those who survived the abuse, they earned the door of no return. And then they went to the middle passage. So we come from generations, a legacy of survivors. We have learned to survive and under the most oppressive, systematic oppression, hostile environments. But however, surviving has had a major impact on our health. We're not mm-hmm. resting. We're not, you know, the pandemic uh, hurt our community. So many of us died at a, a crazy percentage compared to other ethnicities in our nation. And so all these things play out um, in, in um, our communities. Uh, there's a statistic that says uh, two thirds of adults have experienced some uh, form of trauma. And one out of five children before the age of 18 have experienced at least three major trauma, traumatic events in their lives. So you start looking at people and in our congregations, in our communities and say, 90% of our community have experienced trauma. 
And what are we going to do? There are people in our people in our churches sitting in our pews, and you know we have to be able to minister to them. And I know as a pastor. Uh, things that's outside of my job description. I'm not a licensed therapist, but we have to teach. Um, uh, we have to uh, we have to partner in our communities with licensed therapists and um, and do things that are um, on the cutting edge. I remember in our community having a mental health weekend, and I brought all the churches together, and we had all these clinicians, and we had free counseling. Um, all for Friday, Saturday, and even on Sunday, people can set up appointments. And the number of people who were suffering from depression, who was wrestling with suicide, children, we had uh, therapists for children, all ages. And it broke, my, it, was, it was a great event, but it broke my heart, the number of children and mm -hmm. people that were wrestling with suicide. Mm -hmm. And so this, this is what we're dealing with. I'm glad you mentioned that, pastors. Um, I think that one of the first steps is acknowledging that the adverse childhood experiences that you reference do exist because they do. And even we as adults who have had what's called ACEs um, sometimes have not healed from that. And so some of our trauma responses, if you will, come as a result of that root of the adverse childhood experiences. When you talk about the church house, um, I know that there are some churches. I know there's one here in Baltimore and there's a church in Philly I used to attend that have what's considered or called a pastoral care or and pastoral counseling ministry where there are licensed clinicians that are part of that ministry. Um, some that have gone through university programs where it's specifically dedicated to pastoral counseling and pastoral care. Um, I myself have the pastoral care degree because I'm already a clinician, so I didn't need to go back and get the pastoral counseling piece. But I think it's important that churches begin to look at that. So I'm glad to hear that you're offering those opportunities, but to actually have something in-house where congregants or people even from the outside can come in and access those resources because we have to heal. And I think doing it with the cl clinical and the spiritual aspect married together addresses the whole person. And I think that that's important. And acknowledging is the first step. Amen. The whole person, I think that's key. The whole person. Just ask uh, uh, Dr. Chisholm to just talk a little bit more about. I mean, how is how is pastoral counseling differ from kind of straight uh, clinical psychiatric or or psychotherapeutic practice? What does the intersection of spirituality and and clinical knowledge? What does that What does that look like? How is it different? I think the audience would really like to know the answer to that question. So I'm not a pastoral counselor. Um, I have my pastoral care degree, but I do know that um, friends of mine, colleagues of mine, former classmates that pursued that degree um, are practicing through faith-based protocol initiative, if you will, um, but marrying the two. 
So if you are a pastoral care counselor, you are meeting someone where they are spiritually, but bringing with it the tenets of clinical counseling so that that person can heal. Um, I think that what's important is that whomever the provider is recognize that they have to start where their quote unquote patient, if you will, is first. And if it's about where's God in all of this, then that's the conversation that a pastoral counselor is going to have versus a clinician who can't have that conversation with fidelity, um, with the proper training, with the proper preparation to have that discussion uh, with someone who wants to speak from a faith-based aspect. And I'll just use myself as an example. Um, I'm a clinician and in the schoolhouse, um, I also served on the traumatic loss team for my, my um, school community. And there were times where we had staff maybe or students who wanted to speak from that space, but because I'm in a school setting, they say I can't, okay? Um, but I didn't shy away from that. If someone brought it up, then I was going to address it with them. Um, whereas in a church, through ministry or through a nonprofit organization that is specifically offering pastoral care, pastoral counseling, then you can have those conversations. Most of those people that have that degree are LCPCs and not so much social workers or psychologists, if you will. I hope that I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I just, I can't let this go. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about is how, how comfort, you know, these neural pathways that I've been talking about, you know, it's like, it's like a, a salve that's, that's, oh, that's laid over, you know, the, the comfort of being, of being with folks who recognize your humanity, humanity of, of engaging in, in, in activities, cooking or, you know, whatever, just community, you know, kinds of things, laying this kind of salve, you know, over these, these neural pathways that are, that are trauma informed trauma as, as you know, Pastor Eric was saying, coming from trauma and ACEs, you know, what you're talking about, that's sad. And I'm thinking that to me, one of the most powerful things about the church is not just the minister who stands up in the front, but the Holy Spirit that, that energizes the whole congregation. And I'm wondering if there's a way for a pastoral counselor to tap into that in terms of helping people who are having these kinds of difficulties feel enveloped you know, with that energy. Yes, and that's one of the things about our church, um, Transformed Church, from Romans 12 to be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit helps your mind to be renewed. You know, being giving your life to the Lord uh, for us changes your, your heart, your salvation, your state, uh, your eternal destination. However, your mind still has to be renewed. And if it's renewed by the Holy Spirit, course, the word of God. And we believe that if you transform your mind, you transform your life. And if you can transform your life, then you can transform the world. But it first begins with you being transformed in your thinking, in your thought process. And also in terms of what Professor Brewer was saying about finding your purpose, you know, um, I mean, I, 
I, I was really struck by a quote from um, per- President Biden, you know, who's not like the most, you know, kind of energetic and powerful speaker. But he was apparently in the Rose Garden with uh, a group of families who had, who all who had lost loved ones to gun violence. And he said that that his family hadn't lost anybody to gun violence, um, but they did lose a, a son. And he said that they found that the the way to respond to grief is to find purpose. Uh, I mean, that really struck me because I think yeah. a true. lot of us, particularly those of us who were in progressive, you know, spaces and, and trying to make things better for people, you know, there, there may be traumas of our own that we're that we're responding to by finding purpose, by trying to find a way to make it better for everybody so that the kinds of traumas that we've experienced or that our loved one has experienced don't have to keep happening again and again. And what President Biden actually didn't go even deeper and talk about is way back when he first became a United States senator and the loss that he suffered with his daughter and his first wife traumatically and how, you know, others could have said, I'm going to step down from public life. But he turned his pain into purpose as well. And, you know, some may look at his journey as just, oh, kind of white privilege, you know, charmed life in the Senate. But he is here as president, I believe, for such a time as this. Yes. And and think of the the refreshing that many of us feel that this country had post pandemic in the midst of a pandemic with him even winning the election. But if he had not persevered through circumstances that most people would have withdrawn from public life and maybe even felt sorry for themselves, you know, and, and we would agree with them. You should feel sorry for yourself for all this trauma that happened. Right. But he turned his pain into purpose. And I think that's what spirituality continues. And as faith leaders, that's what faith is really about, too. You know, Dr. King said it, it's it's taking that step. I'm paraphrasing yes. on the staircase, even when you don't see the stair. So ultimately, yes, Professor McDougal, I do think that as faith leaders, we believe that invoking, you know, the presence of God, which is that representation yes. of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God and that unknown thing that that's happening. That's your hope. That's your future. I can't touch it. I can't see it. But I just know that this is not all when I'm in adverse situations. This is not all that I am meant for. I I am here for greater purpose. This pain I'm going through, it's not the end of the story. We're going to keep turning the page. This is a chapter. It may even be a volume, but it is not the end of my story. And in the end, I believe that that's what, you know, those of us that are in the faith community have to, on a very personal level, I think gone are the times, we talk about this all the time, of kind of the mega church and thousands of people there. No, it is time for faith leaders to know their congregants' names and pain personally and build up a team of people because you don't want to wear yourself out either as, as, as a first responder, which we are, but we need to raise up a generation of people that are compassionate, that include trained clinicians who can teach us something about how to do this and partner together to really start rescuing people from the mental health 
crises to reveal their purpose. I'm I'm a living testimony of this. Yes. Um, for those who don't know, I am a COVID survivor and a COVID widower. Um, ground, my church was in Hackensack, New Jersey, which was ground zero for um, COVID oh, New in New Jersey, spread it from my city. And I eventually con contacted it, uh, contracted it, and along with my late wife, and she passed. And so I had to leave lead my community, lead my family through grief, the church, of course. And um, through all of the pain and all the suffering and all the, the uh, grief recovery, I have um, went back to school, working on my doctorate, writing a dissertation on the resiliency of African-American men and how spiritual, uh, spirit, their spirituality impact their grief recovery. And I have a uh, a widower support ministry mm -hmm. that is on its second phase and we're ministering to men african-american men from around the nation who have lost their wives not just from COVID, from all types of sicknesses and diseases and especially during this holiday season and it's so um what you said um uh, professor harold in reference to purpose and what um uh, professor tiffany just shared as well is in your pain finding your purpose god will use your pain as a plat platform yes. to help other folks god wastes nothing and so what has been a blessing to so many men it came from a, a place of pain and even through my pain i learned to love again to live again to laugh again to learn again but i had to go through this grief recovery not only for myself but to be able to turn around and help someone else you know, uh, I got to say, you know, Pastor Eric and, and, and all of you, and of course, you know, we've, we haven't given Michael a, a chance to talk at all, but I, I want to ask Michael, I mean, you know, what you just heard the pastors say and, and, and Dr. Chisholm say about transforming adversity and pain and stress and anxiety into purpose. What do you think the possibilities are of, of your generation, you know, kind of taking the trauma that they are experiencing right now and maybe turning it into a purpose that's going to make all of us kind of look back and say, wow, I'm, I'm really glad I knew these young people when they were coming up. I, I think about, and I'm glad you asked that question, Professor, because I, I honestly think that this past election was evidence of transforming pain into purpose, like we've been talking about. We saw a record number of folks in their generation, Gen Z and millennials coming out to vote, transforming their anger right, about the climate crisis, about uh, the threat to democracy, um, about gun violence. We've seen instances of mass shootings in schools this year, tragedies coming out of those kinds of situations. And all of those things uh, motivated so many young people to turn out and vote. And the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin came on uh, Morning Joe this morning, and she was expressing how, you know, every once in a while in American history, we have a specific generation that decides to take upon itself um, the, the the task of ensuring that tomorrow looks better. Uh, she, she mentioned Franklin Roosevelt um, in the Great Depression, inspiring folks to um, look beyond the current economic situation of the state, and actually ended up becoming what is now known as the great the greatest generation, as they started to uh, give up more of themselves uh, to volunteer more than ever before in record numbers. Uh, even those who were not involved in the war effort had some kind of role back at home uh, in the United States. Then John F. Kennedy, uh, who uh, inspired folks to, um, you know, give of themselves uh, to keep 
you know, this, the spirit of, of sacrifice and service alive in the United States, Barack Obama, um, you know, inspiring folks to want to be the change they want to see in the world, as he says. And so I think a lot of people took that to heart this, this last Tuesday. Um, and we saw it in the results. If I think millennials, Gen Z folks did not turn out, it would have been a much different election. Um, and so it, it kind of pivots me to um, some of the work I've seen some organizations do, uh, organizations that are tasked with trying to come up with solutions to uh, addressing mental health issues. And there was this one organization in particular that I'm thinking of that actually saw voting as almost like therapeutic to, or civic engagement rather, as therapeutic to, um, you know, some of the anxieties that folks are dealing with, some of the the, the feeling of um, not having a place in the world, uh, of not having a purpose, of not fulfilling, um, you know, a specific set of goals. And so I want to ask you, panelists, do you believe that there's some kind of um, merit to that belief that voting civic engagement can serve as a pr productive and constructive way of addressing some of the mental health issues that we've been discussing today, as opposed to the, you know, retreating to violence, uh, as opposed to allowing our brains to create hallucinations that we're comfortable with that we mentioned earlier in the uh, article excerpt. Well, it's certainly a way to feel like you're part of something. And, and that connects back up to the whole discussion about finding your purpose. Some of the students in my classes were, were, were saying that they weren't sure that they wanted to vote because they didn't know if their vote would count. And I kind of relayed back to them some of the kind of analysis that you just described that it isn't just, well, first of all, if your vote wasn't important, why why are people trying so hard to keep you from voting, right? That's number one. But the second thing is, is that I, I advise them to vote together, you know, to, to you know, get, get all their friends, you know, do a social media drop and just say, hey, let's all go down to the polls. Maybe there's early voting. Let's all go together. You know, let's do this together. I mean, you know, like families, uh, when their children reach the age of voting age, they'll, they'll all go as a family you know, and vote together. Um, it isn't just about the impact that you're going to have on this huge, you know, multi-million vote, you know, kind of outcome. It's also that you feel that you're worth, you're worth, you, you're worth this, you know, that this is your right. You step up and you do it. I think the act of voting is an act of self-advocacy giving your voice, lending your voice to those things that matter, that are important to you. Um, and I also think that it's about building the community within which you live. Um, I think that is important and it's a part of the voting process. Without it, you have no voice. And I think exercising that right to vote is a powerful tool and self-advocacy is one of those tenants. I wholeheartedly agree. And just personally speaking, I, I think that, well, first, I have a master's in public administration, you know, bachelor's in political science. When I was a little girl, I would literally do mock like political elections, mm -hmm. like as a one woman mocking each person candidate <laughs> in the elections, like by myself. So I feel like I, I learned now that that has been a part of who I am, my gifts, the platform that I'm interested in, connected to my purpose. But, but that aside, 
as an African-American woman in the United States, I believe that it is a part of my human responsibility to vote in every election that is ever in the history of the world eligible for me to vote in because history has shown us by the violence that was perpetuated and the lives that were given and the blood that was shed, the bruising um, and the bruised ego, right? And the humiliation tied to it shows us that there is power. Why would systems in this country be created that would even brutalize people to prevent them to vote if voting was not powerful. So voting is our American responsibility to preserve this democracy. But as a descendant of former slaves in this country, I think that I just have no choice but to continue to honor the legacy of, of, of Fannie Lou Hamer, of you know those that were civil rights workers who were killed and never seen again. Uh, so mm-hmm. I could go on. Don't get me started. <laughs> I, <laughs> I could well, preach. Amen that. to that. Amen <laughs> to that. Yes. Yes. And I, and I just want to concur with that. Just think about the history of America and systematic oppression and Jim Crow laws. However, racism has a way of causing the victim to have eternalized devaluation. And voting says, as Sister Schism said, I matter, self-advocacy, I matter. I'm going to vote because I'm a human being and I have the right to vote. And when you think about it, it, it the, the fighting off the negative thoughts, internalized devaluation says, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Why not? You should you, you should vote because your vote does matter. Yeah. Can I add to that? I what calls to memory for me um, when I first moved here to Maryland because I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I had my daughter with me um, in my first act of voting here in the state of Maryland, and she was standing with me. I wanted her to see what I was doing. You start young. You start them young. You show them how it's done. And there's a white woman who said, no, 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 she can't be in there. And I said, why not? I'm her mother and she's not gonna touch anything. She's watching what I'm doing. I'm modeling responsible action, social action for her. That was my conversation to that woman. She walked away because she didn't have an argument for what I was doing. And I think not only is our responsibility to vote, but it's our responsibility to teach Absolutely. the generation that's coming behind us that this is what you do. This is your responsibility. How dare we not? Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you as you describe that, um, the, the reaction of that woman seeing you like the nerve of you. You know, I mean, not only are you here, but you're going to bring your child in here as well. Because one of the things we have to remember about hierarchy is that hierarchy is a means of controlling the in-group as well as the out-group. Racism is a way of controlling white people as well as black people. You know, you know, white people can say, you know, in the middle rungs and the lower rungs, well, I'm better than these black people. But they have to they have to follow the orders of those above them. And that that causes a kind of a of, a, of an instability, you know, uh, that that's you know very very serious, and you know the idea that you would have the nerve 
to walk in there and, and vote as if you were a real human being, as if you were a real person. That isn't just that isn't just you stepping out of your place. That's you threatening my place. You know, who I because I'm supposed to be way better than you. I mean, and you're not even supposed to even think that you can do the kinds of things that I can do. So there's there's the power of voting. Even if you went into the voting booth and you didn't even cast a ballot, you just walked in and closed the, the that would be enough to send ripples throughout that whole throughout that whole establishment. And I'm glad I'm glad each of you mentioned um, you know your take on this because the Jed Foundation found that young people in particular feel that political involvement rarely has tangible results. That's 36 percent, and politics today, according to 56 percent are no longer able to able to meet the challenges our country is facing. And of course, this can inspire feelings of fear, of anxiety, of depression, of hopelessness, in addition to election stress. But this same study also found that voting, civic engagement, like we've been addressing, actually is a strong way to combat any of these mental, Ill, mental health uh, illnesses. And so I'm glad that you each brought that up. Um, in the closing moments of the program, I do want to open up the floor for any last thoughts. Are there any last thoughts before we conclude? I, I, would, just, I, I, I would say that that folks should understand that, you know, while you are one of millions voting in national elections, you're one of maybe thousands voting in state and local elections. And, and you're, and, you know, there are local elections that are decided by a few votes. So... Pay attention to to your community. Pay attention to the to the to the politics that surrounds you immediately, and you know you might be surprised at at the uh, the results that you're able to generate. I'm glad you brought that up, Professor. There was a report that surprised me recently. I think that New Hampshire's state legislature was called for the Republicans, but by one vote through a recall, one vote changed everything, and now the Democrats are controlling that state legislature. So, if you don't believe your vote matters. That's evidence enough. I think there was also a 14 vote difference in another election. I mean, we see instance after instance how tight some of these, you know, this election was a real squeaker when you look at it. Um, the, narrate, the, the, the narration around this election is that the election deniers lost um, and that the MAGA candidates were defeated because Americans were tired of the extremism. But when you look at the margins by, by which these folks lost, is you know, it was, it's really by a, a coin flip that you know, this loss, it was very thin, these margins, state by state. Um, P Professor Brewer, you're gonna say something. I was just gonna say, I think civic engagement is important as a motivation for voting as well. Yes. When you know and understand the system, then you understand your role that you have to play and, and the role that voting does really make in it. And you also learn that, you know, you, you debunk the myth that voting is the only way. Of course, it's easy to feel like your vote doesn't matter if you think kind of in your mind that voting is the only way that a citizen has to participate in the process or to be at the table. It is one of many in my legislation and regulation class. You know, my real goal is to get the students to understand the Constitution, how it divides power and where they as citizens and as future lawyers representing clients or being advocates 
can impact the system at every single point in every branch of government. How many of us have ever gone to a public hearing that has to legally occur before your rates for your cable or, or your uh, water or your public utilities are raised? How many people go? I used to oversee those hearings. One to two people would show up if that Right. And, and how many of us know to monitor regulations that may and give a comment on them that may impact us as citizens? So there are so many ways if you are engaged in civic, engaged civically and know and understand your government in the process that you won't feel so powerless and you'll know the role even that voting has as well. And I do think that that is lost, Mike in the generations that are coming up now. So I think there's a direct correlation between the lack of civic education and the, uh, the, the anxiety around feeling like my voice does not matter. And so that's something that we can do no matter what generation we're in. And I'm, I'm glad you were encouraging uh, Professor McDougall, your students, to grab friends to come and vote with you. But we, we I think, just have to start the movement back of Get involved also means be knowledgeable, learn the system. Don't just try to blow it up and you don't know what the system, how it works. The current system could allow you to impact it with your gifts and talents, but you have to know it. And I would add from a mental health perspective that mental health is important. Own it, take care of yourself, self-care, Self-advocacy is not selfish. Right. It is critical to your well-being and it is critical to your voice as you're voting. So be aware of policy, be aware of the needs in the community, be aware of your own needs, but more importantly, recognize that you have to stay at the table, keep your voice in the conversation. If you need to go to your pastor, if you need to go to your clinician, do it. Don't shy away from it. Not to do so causes you not to have the voice that you need so that you can speak on behalf of yourself, your family, and others in your community. Thank you so much, Professor McDougall, uh, Pastor Eric, Professor Brewer, Ms. Chisholm. It's been a privilege and honor to have such a rich discussion on such an important topic. P Professor McDougall, if you could re remind the viewers um, where they can access the article that will be published, Neurodiversity and the Mental Health Dilemma, where they can find it, um, what, when it will be available. Yeah, it, it should be available early next year, uh, the Human and Civil Rights uh, Law Review at Howard University. Um, in the interim, a draft of it is available at the Social Sciences Research Network. Uh, on my author page, Harold McDougall, you can you know kind of see some of this stuff. And I also want to thank you know Sister Chisholm and Pastors Eric and, and and Pastor Brewer. You know what a what a powerful you know conversation. I mean, Pastor Eric talking about his experiences and how that you know the trauma informed you know uh, ministry. And I'm just I'm just in awe of all of you. Thank you so much. With that being said, likewise. Thank you. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 84 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. And as I always do, I want to encourage you to refrain from sketchy sources of news and challenge the sources of news that you do plug into. It's critical. It's important. It's the vital part of just being a citizen. Thank you so much uh, for what you and what you brought to the table tonight.
This will conclude episode 84 of the Political Mic Podcast. Thank you so much.